1: Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, I speak with Kate Zamarzik about supplements and Christina McGee about Science Week at the Royal Botanic Gardens. But first up, here's the news about new astronauts. Commercial space crew. After an eight-year gap, NASA is training astronauts again. They're training to fly on spacecraft designed, built and owned by Boeing, the airplane company and Elon Musk's SpaceX. The crew will be piloting private spacecraft to low Earth orbit and the International Space Station. NASA has named five astronauts to the first two Boeing Starliner flights and four to the first two SpaceX Dragon flights. Flying on the SpaceX test flight in 2019, launching from NASA's Kennedy Space Center on top of a Falcon 9 rocket, Bob Behnken flew aboard the space shuttle Endeavour twice. He's a flight test engineer as well as a US Air Force colonel. Doug Hurley was formerly a Marine Corps test pilot. Hurley piloted two of the space shuttles, including the final space shuttle mission in 2011. For the Boeing test flight from Cape Canaveral Air Force Space Station in Florida, Nicole Mann test flew Marine Corps F-18 fighter jets before being selected as a NASA astronaut in 2013. Starliner's first crewed flight will be her first trip to space. Chris Ferguson piloted one space shuttle and commanded another two. Ferguson retired from the Corps after the space shuttle's last flight, but he's returned to active duty. Eric Bow was a US Air Force colonel test pilot before becoming a NASA astronaut in 2000. Bo has piloted two space shuttles. Mann, Ferguson and Boe are set to launch in Starliner during the middle of next year, lifting on the top of an Atlas V rocket built by United Launch Alliance, a joint venture of Boeing and Lockheed Martin. After the spacecraft are tested, they will be certified, and then they can be commissioned for missions. For the first SpaceX mission, Victor Glover is a Navy commander and test pilot. This will be his first trip into space. Mike Hopper Hopkins was a flight test engineer and colonel in the U.S. Air Force. He flew two shuttle missions. For the first Boeing mission, Sonny Williams has spent nearly a year in space, altogether, together, with seven spacewalks since 1998. Josh Cassada is a US Navy commander and test pilot. This will be his first trip to space. On a Reddit Ask Me Anything, the astronauts said they were looking forward to more legroom in the new spacecraft. The Soyuz seats that they've been using push your knees to your stomach, whereas the modern spacecraft will allow astronauts to bend their knees like they were sitting normally. Essentially, they're looking forward to being upgraded from economy class. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Do you take supplements? Kate Samazic is a PhD candidate from the University of Technology, Sydney. Kate studies environmental biotoxins and supplements.
2: Well primarily I'm studying the toxic effect of some compounds that are commonly found in nutritional supplements and in particular I'm looking about how they affect a particular part of the cell called the mitochondria.
1: And what does the mitochondria do for us?
2: The mitochondria you may have heard is the powerhouse of the cell which basically means they produce all the energy molecules.
1: So there are supplements on the market that are supposed to enhance the function of our mitochondria. Do they really help us?
2: Well. That's a bit of a tricky question. So they're not designed specifically to help the mitochondria, but more to have an overall beneficial effect. The jury's still kind of out on that though, because there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that supplements do work. And part of the regulatory process is that they don't actually have to show that.
1: If you're selling a supplement, you don't have to prove it does anything helpful.
2: Not at all. That's why... um, you tend to see words like boosts, improves, promotes used in the supplement industry because they don't actually have any pharmaceutical claim. It's not like where if you take Panadol, you know it's actually gone through a clinical trial process to actually be beneficial to a headache and that's why they can say it has this effect. Supplements aren't the same even though they tend to look like that in in terms of packaging and you find them next to things in pharmacies and supermarkets. They don't actually have that beneficial um, proof.
1: Do they have to prove that they're not harmful?
2: Well, it depends what kind they are. So, there's actually two different classes of supp- like or we'll call them complementary medicines. So, there's the high-risk ones which are compounds that have never been used before and they do have to prove that they're not harmful. The ones I look at are actually amino acids, and I don't know if you know, but amino acids are pretty much everywhere in nature and They pretty much make up proteins in our body. And because the ones I look at are amino acids, they tend to bypass that kind of regulatory thing and get classified as safe, even though we don't necessarily know that. And that's what the bulk of my PhD is about.
1: Is that a sort of a grandfathering legal process because they've already been on sale in foods?
2: I would definitely say that, especially because the ones I look at are less commonly known. Um, So the ones I look at are actually called non-protein amino acids. So I'm going to a little bit of chemistry, biochemistry. So there's amino acids that are used to make proteins, and they're called protein amino acids. And they're really commonly studied, widely found everywhere, and of course considered safe because they go into our bodies. So they're called protein amino acids. But what everyone tends to forget is that there's actually about a thousand other amino acids out there. And they're called non-protein amino acids, so they're not used in protein synthesis. So the ones I look at belong to this little subset of amino acids, and because they're less well-known, they're less well-studied and can be sometimes harmful.
1: What sort of these non-protein amino acids are you investigating?
2: Well, I'm looking at a couple, so the very first one that really kick-started all of the research into these non-protein amino acids is one called beta-methylaminoalanine, methyl or BMAA for short, and it's found in algae. And so the story goes that there was an island in the West Pacific called Guam, and in about the 1960s, these American doctors came and started noticing people on the island were sick they actually had uh, incidence of motor neuron disease, Parkinson's and dementia that was about 50, uh, 50 times higher than in any developed countries. So this got them on this big mystery, wondering what was going on, and they eventually identified this compound, BMAA, which is a non-protein amino acid, in the algae on the island and found it was bioaccumulating through the food chain, and they thought it was p- making people sick because it was actually getting into proteins because it was very similar to one of those good protein amino acids. So that's the one that started it all. And my lab started looking at that one. And then we started thinking about ways that this compound or compounds like it could be getting into people's diet. So in the, on the island of Guam, it was actually because they were eating flying foxes that were actually eating a plant that grew in the algae. So that's how it was bioaccumulating. Now, I don't think we eat much flying fox. So it was a bit di- a bit difficult to find a way to make our research relevant. And then we started looking into it and realized that a lot of green powders and supplements such as spirulina actually are based on algae, which could produce this toxin. And so we started looking at that and then we started wondering if there are any other similar compounds in other supplements and we actually found some so i look primarily at one in a pre-workout which is what people take before they go to the gym and i also look at one in a fiber supplement
1: so you've looked at the pre-workout protein supplements that have algae and also a fiber supplement based on algae
2: so i'm not looking at the algal toxin So I'm looking at two others that are similar. So there's one called Norvaline, and that's the one in the pre-workout. So it's not a protein supplement. It's actually meant to take, it's taken as a nitric oxide pump, which is a class of supplements that are basically meant to increase blood flow and actually increase blood, like cause vasodilation, increase blood flow and make muscles look bigger while working out. So that's what the intended use is, whether it actually does that is not proven yet, and some of my research is suggesting maybe it's not actually that safe to consume in the first place.
1: So what sort of problems is your research suggesting there?
2: So first of all, well my research has shown that it's not actually having an increased effect in terms of producing energy molecules, which is something that it's also purported to do. So not only have I shown that it's got no effect, I'm showing that it's actually damaging part of the cells. So I grow um, a human cell line, which is a clone neuroblastoma cell line that's used to model neurodegenerative disease. Because of that Guam story, that's why we look at that specific cell line. And I'm showing that it's actually killing the cells and being harmful to the cells when I'm exposing the cells to concentrations that are quite similar to what people are taking.
1: Did you find a similar problem with things like spirulina?
2: So I haven't looked at the spirulina. So we, look, we don't really tend to look at the things in their actual formulation as the supplement themselves because that that can actually cause a bit of legal trouble if we're in terms of publishing because we don't want to name and shame. So we tend to just buy the store-bought chemical and look at the chemical itself. Some of the others in my lab have been looking at the compound BMEA and they are seeing some toxic result as well in that one, but I'm looking at this other one, Norvalin, most of the time.
1: People are taking supplements to help them when they're working out and to give them more energy to make them look more pumped up. So not only may they not be working, but they could be hurting them?
2: That's exactly right.
1: And so how is it hurting them?
2: So we don't know because supplement use is relatively new. It's really doubled in the last 15 years or so. It's been steadily increasing since the 1970s in terms of vitamins, but these pre-workouts and kind of gym things have really been on the up. So... We're not sure what the actual effect in people is yet because it's just too early to tell and the type of diseases that we think that it may cause or lead to are actually diseases that take a really long time to develop. So it may be that in the next 15 to 20 years we actually have a generation of people who are using these supplements and going to the gym and really health conscious in their youth are starting to develop diseases that may be associated with the supplement use.
1: Well, there's people taking supplements for their immune system. There are people taking supplements to try and hack their mitochondria to live longer. There's taking it for all sorts of reasons. Do you think people have an idea that it might not only might not work, a lot of people suspect they don't work, they're just punting, but that it might hurt them?
2: I don't really think people know that because people tend to see supplements and they think they like look, talk and walk and breathe like a regular medicine. And they know that medicines have been checked and they kind of assume that that transcends into the world of supplements, but it doesn't. And it's something people definitely need to know more about.
1: So supplements online might not be covered by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. Should people be worried?
2: People definitely shouldn't be buying supplements online. They're not regulated at all, especially if they're bought overseas. And I think it's especially concerning because you're starting to see a lot of people promoting supplements and stuff like supplements on Instagram, for example. And it tends to be like these fitness blogger type people who look great and are spruiking these supplements. But that falls into that online category where things may not actually be regulated at all.
1: So what can people do if the ones they want to try aren't available in Australia? Isn't that their only option?
2: Well, if something's not available in Australia, I think it's worthwhile to trust the regulatory process that something isn't available in Australia for a reason. If a medicine was banned in Australia, why would you go out of your way to get it?
1: Well, I guess some people get desperate and they don't entirely trust the system.
2: Well, that's the beauty of this whole complementary medicine supplement vitamin business. If you have a healthy diet, you don't need that stuff, so you shouldn't be getting desperate. You can just go to the supermarket.
1: So much better that people should have a varied diet
2: that is probably the most important thing you won't need supplements like if you have a healthy diet unless you have you know an extreme medical condition which would be diagnosed by a doctor and then recommended by a doctor to add on that, in terms of talking to your doctor, if you're unsure about any terms of any type of supplement, first talk to your GP about it because your GP will know your history and whether you're taking any other medications that might have contraindications. There's a really good website called NPS MedicineWise, and it's independent evidence-based information about supplements. And there's also the American version, which is medlineplus.gov, which is more comprehensive but still evidence-based information about supplements.
1: Do most people tell their doctors that they're taking supplements?
2: I don't think so. Um, I wouldn't know. I'm not a doctor, but I don't think it's something that is commonly done.
1: So it's something that they really should know about, because if the supplements do anything, then your doctor probably needs to know what you're taking, either whether it's a positive benefit or even if it's a harmful thing that you didn't know about. If you've got symptoms and you're seeing a doctor, tell them what you're doing.
2: Definitely. I actually have a friend who works in healthcare and I'm... when he heard about me talking about supplements, said um, that's something that they have to consider because they don't know how long the supplement will stay in your system, what its half-life is, and how it will interact with other medicines. So it's something that health professionals need to know, and that's why I definitely tell people that you're taking supplements if you are.
1: And you spoke about this for Fame
2: Lab. Yes, I did. That was in April this year. That was a very fun but scary experience, summing up three years' worth of work into three minutes. Challenging but very fun.
1: I went along to your New South Wales presentation, and I was surprised that the judges didn't ask you which supplements you were studying.
2: I was surprised about that too. So one one I can talk about, which is Norvalin, the one in the pre-workout. And that's because I'm very close to publishing that work. So I'm in the final draft stage of that paper. So... There's no chance that anyone out there will go, oh, I'm going to replicate this study and get the same results and try and publish it. The other one um, that's in a fibre supplement I can't talk about as much yet because it's not as close to publishing. So maybe that's why they didn't ask in terms of data protection.
1: And does the university have to do a lot of extra legal work for you to be able to publish information that might hurt the sales of the
2: supplements? No, because I'm not looking at any particular brands. I'm buying them from the chemical warehouse I'm looking at the chemical, not the actual actual product.
1: In addition to FameLab, you've done interviews on a wide variety of media. How are you finding it?
2: It's very scary. I get very nervous beforehand. And then I think as you start talking about your product, you realise how well you know it and how much you like talking about it because it's just a chance to tell more people about what you love.
1: And if people want to find out more about your work, is there papers online or anything they should look up?
2: There's no papers yet, but they're coming soon. But I think the best bet would be to follow me on Twitter. And my handle is just Kate underscore, my last name Samarzyk, which is Kate underscore S-A-M-A-R-D-Z-I-C with a silent D. And that would be the best place for updates. And I will definitely be posting upcoming papers there, as well as any new speaking opportunities that come up.
1: Well, Kate Samarzyk, thank you very much.
2: Cool. Thank you very much, Ian.
1: That was Kate Samarzik talking about biotoxins in supplements at the University of Technology, Sydney. Christina McGee is the Community and Education Programs Officer at the Royal Botanic Gardens. I met her in the gardens and began by asking her, what science is she showcasing for National Science Week?
3: We have so much science going on behind the scenes in our Royal Botanic Garden. It's one of the things that I think people don't always notice when they walk through our spectacular gardens is the science that goes on behind the scenes. So our biggest day for science is our Living Laboratory Science Festival which is a free day. We've got A lot of our scientists coming out of their labs out of the herbarium and showcasing what they do on the festival lawns in the gardens so that's our biggest day there's also lots of kids activities happening external service providers coming in bringing hands-on science experiments and equipment so people can get involved in that there's it's going to be huge actually there's food trucks and face painting and all sorts of things that's our biggest day and then at the Royal Botanic Garden we also have an astronomy night which has sold out wonderfully. So we'll be looking at what stars we can see in our city sky, night sky and we have a wonderful evening called Secret Science and it's all about the secret science of the plant science that we do here at the Robert Botanic Garden so there's a behind the scenes tour of the herbarium and our molecular lab and also our plant clinic and they're run by mostly the managers of the areas of those sciences that's going to be a really rare opportunity to go through the herbarium because the herbarium is moving as you might have heard, uh, to the Australian Botanic Garden out in the Campbelltown direction of Sydney. And so this evening on the 16th of August is going to be the last opportunity for people to go into the herbarium and see our amazing collection of more than a million plant specimens. You can imagine some of them are very old and rare. They include Banks and Salander specimens, original collections, and they all need to be humidity and temperature controlled. The Australian Botanic Garden is our... I think it's our biggest garden in terms of area and it showcases Australian native plants. So they have some endangered Cumberland woodland areas as well as different gardens showcasing Australian flora
1: How many do you have?
3: Uh, There's four. Well, three Botanic Gardens and Centennial Parklands. So we have the Royal Botanic Garden in Sydney, the Australian Botanic Garden in Mount Annan, the Blue Mountains Botanic Garden at Mount Tomah, which has spectacular views over the Blue Mountains, and the Sydney skyline in the distance, and then the Centennial Parklands as well.
1: And what sort of science is done here at the gardens or in the herbarium?
3: So in the herbarium, it's a preserved collection. It's kind of like a library for plants. There are collections that have been made over the last couple of hundred years in Australia and our scientists study those collections in order to do systematics so they ensure that the way that we classify plants is accurate. It's quite amazing Because there are so many specimens in there, it takes such a long time to go through them. There are pressed plant specimens that no one has ever looked at before, since they were pressed and collected and put away in a box. And our scientists are discovering new species amongst the collection even now, which is pretty incredible.
1: That's amazing. So they're Mm. looking at the seed shapes and the flowers and the leaves to work out the differences in the species.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And once they've think they've got a really great description of a species they'll also send the specimen to our botanic illustrators who will draw that up so we have an accurate record of the plants in our collection
1: and where would people find those illustrations
3: i believe some are available online but otherwise they're in scientific journals
1: And you also look at plant disease here at the gardens.
3: Yeah, in our plant clinic, which has beautiful windows open to the public, so if you're in the Royal Botanic Garden at any point, you can put your nose against the glass and see what's happening inside the lab. Our scientists study fungi and other plant pathogens to work out how to look after plants and agricultural crops, but also what beneficial products might come from pathogens that we don't know about yet.
1: There are some activities for for children looking at DNA in plants?
3: Yeah so one of our activities on the day is called Science Safari and it's for science nerds of all ages I would say. Kids and adults alike can wander around the gardens and find the six activity stations. One of them is on plant forensics and you can work out being taught by our Macquarie Uni students who are doing this as part of a project. You can learn how to find out the DNA of a banana. So they'll go through that process with you and you can extract DNA, which is pretty cool.
1: So when is that event?
3: That's part of Living Laboratory. So on this Saturday, the 11th of August, from 9 until 2, in the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney, it's a big festival day, but all day as part of the event is the science safari. So you can come in, join Festival Village, explore all the science stalls, listen to talks and demonstrations but you can also wander around the gardens and complete the six challenges including the plant forensics DNA challenge.
1: And you've also got events at Centennial Park.
3: Yes I think their biggest day is Science in the Swamp which is happening on the 18th of August. They've got lots of hands-on science activities that are happening on their side as well.
1: I know there was something about
3: dinosaurs. <laughs> yes, uh, they have some huge dinosaur puppets, which are incredibly lifelike, and kids love interacting with them. They're huge, and they run around the gardens at set times during that event, so it's pretty spectacular to see.
1: Tell me about the bee hotels.
3: So on Sunday, the 12th of August, this coming Sunday, we have a bee hotel workshop happening in the Calyx, which is open for the last weekend for the pollination display so if you haven't got down to the calyx yet be sure to come in and see our spectacular floral display but Abby is the name of the teacher for our bee hotel workshops and she's going to run through the benefits of building bee hotels or even just insect hotels for pollination in our gardens so she's going to showcase a lot of our different native Australian pollinators including the blue banded bee and teddy bear bees which if you haven't seen them are gorgeous, you must look them up. And then every participant will get to build and take home their own mini bee hotel.
1: Because native bees don't live in hives, do they? They need little individual holes to live in.
3: Yeah, some native bees are solitary, so they don't build a hive or live in a colony. They often like to burrow into mud or wood.
1: And then you can get your fruit trees at home pollinated.
3: Yeah, there are some amazing native bees that do pollination differently to the European bees that have been brought in to Australia. So the blue-banded bee actually does an amazing thing called buzz pollination. Buzz pollination involves the bee vibrating its abdomen in the flower and it is really effective, particularly in pollinating solanaceae species so all of your tomatoes and potatoes and eggplants and those sorts of things so it's definitely worth encouraging our native bees to our gardens
1: and they don't sting
3: no some of our native bees are stingless which is pretty incredible some of them do sting but most of them don't and yeah they're pretty shy creatures anyway so tend not to hurt us get outside and enjoy your local park or garden definitely come down to the Royal Botanic Garden in Sydney and explore the garden in a way that you haven't before. A lot of our plants are labelled with species names and extra information so come and check out our living collection uh, because it is very much a living laboratory our garden it's a science lab everywhere you go.
1: Well Christina thank you very much. Thanks Ian. That was Christina McGee talking about the Science Week events at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Sydney. The first one is this Saturday, the 11th of August. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound and fact-checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the Community Radio Network. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on Astronomy.fm. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
0: Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule